confessing to you that we fall short of your glory every single day. Lord God, thank you for the forgiveness of sins. Thank you for your plan of salvation, grace, mercy, kindness. Thank you for sacrificing yourself and your son, Jesus Christ, for us. Lord Jesus, thank you for your courage, your obedience, your faithfulness. Thank you for your holiness and purity. Lord Jesus, thank you for your life and death, your resurrection, your ascension, and your intercession for us. Father, we pray for all the folks that are on the prayers for church. We ask that you work in their lives in a mighty way, helping them with whatever they need. We pray, Father, that you would help us in this country. Lord God, we pray that you'll help our president, all of our leaders to follow your will. And if they don't follow your will, Lord, we pray for a conviction of that given to each one. Father in heaven, help our military, our men and women that are serving. Please keep them safe, Father. Bring them home safely. Work in their hearts. Father, we just pray for your Christians around the world. Please help your Christian people with their health or their marriages or if they're single. Help them with their jobs and businesses, their ministries. Help those who are suffering, poor, hungry, living in countries where they cannot worship you openly, living in some kind of disaster. Convict your pastors and teachers, Lord God, to study and teach your word clearly, accurately. Father, for the unbelievers, we pray that you'll draw them to you and convict them of their sins. God in heaven, we just want to know your word, study your word. We just want to know everything about it we can, Father. So we ask that your Holy Spirit will come, fill us, that you'll forgive us for our sins, that you will give us, grant us wisdom and discretion, understanding and knowledge as we study your word, as we fellowship with each other. Help us to love each other, Lord, through you. We'll give you the praise and the glory in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 All right. Hey, we are in Genesis. Technically. Okay, so turn to Genesis 10. I don't want to read all this again. Because we did read it. No, maybe we'll read. We will read it again. You, you can't ever. I can't ever go wrong reading the word, can you? No. So turn with me to Genesis chapter 10. Chapter 10 and chapter 11 go together. And um, we'll read them both. And then we'll come back and kind of pick them apart a little bit. Now, ordinarily, the average Christian person that reads chapter 10 doesn't really get much out of it. I want to do it all over again. That's right. But here's the deal, you know, folks, we've got this, this word, and we say that it's the word of God. That's what we say. That's what the word says of itself, that it is the word of God. 
You know, if, if Jesus Christ was a guest speaker at our church, somehow, someway, first of all, we'd be full, right? Overflowing, we'd be out the door. We'd have to have televisions in the rooms. And we would be listening to every single word he said, wouldn't we? You know, God's word is, is very meaningful. And I really believe, and I think you'll agree with me, that every single word is important. It's there for a reason. Now we can say, oh, yeah, but we have so many different translations. How do you know? I'll tell you how you know. Is that the Holy Spirit teaches you. Okay? I don't care whether you're reading King Jimmy, the NIV, the American Standard. I don't care even if you're reading one of the paraphrased versions, like the Living Bible. You can get something out of all of it because the Holy Spirit is the one that interprets this for us. Okay? So when we think about this table of nations that's given to us in chapter 10, this is really important, and I'll tell you why. Because you, if you know this, and you combine it with the knowledge of history, especially the history that's given to us in the Bible, you can, you can get an idea of why some nations and some peoples are the way they are. You know, if you take the Arab nations, for example, right, the ones that, uh, that descended from, or let's say the, 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 the uh, Ishmaelites, right? The descendants of Ishmael, that's the other son of Abraham. It says in the Bible that he will be a donkey of a man. A wild donkey of a man, and that he will not even be able to get along with his brothers. Now, if you look at that, and you look at the nations today that stem from Ishmael, boy, isn't that just the truth? The one thing that many of them have in common is their hatred of the Jews. So as we read this table of nations, it may not seem clear to you right now exactly where we're going to go, but as we go, you'll think back, oh, I remember when we studied chapter 10. That gives me a little <coughs> idea of why or what or who, who or how or whatever. Yes? Another interesting thing I've heard about Ishmael. Hagar? Yeah, when the angel met her, you were the one who said this. <laughs> <laughs> I might be repeating that to you. Okay, that's all right. But um, when she was under the tree, when she was running away, and the angel came and spoke to her in the dream and assured her that they cared about what happened, that's how so many of the additional lives are going to God now, is by the and I wish I would have said that. I did. That's a good point. Yeah. I didn't hear. Yeah, could you repeat what she said? I could hear. Okay, so she said that when. Um, okay, so from now on, if you've got something to say, speak up so that we can all hear you. Let's see if I can repeat this. Uh, she heard someone say, and it wasn't me, that the when the Hagar 
The mother of Ishmael was sent away, and she was out thinking she was going to die underneath the tree. And the angel came and ministered to her and told her that everything was going to be good, etc., etc. Uh, Sue was saying that this is how God is reaching many of those descendants today, okay, through dreams and visions and through through that type of situation. You know, we don't know what's going on in the rest of the world. There's a lot of stuff going on in the rest of the world that would absolutely amaze and surprise us. God uses anything and everything that he has at his disposal to reach people wherever they're at, whatever culture they're in, etc. Yes? We had uh, a speaker in our last church who was a Muslim convert and witnessing as a Christian. Okay. And he spoke of more than one person that as he approached them, uh, like the closest lady working at a gas station, and she says, you know, I've, just been, I've been having these dreams about Jesus. It's so funny that you come and talk to me about it. And he said that it happened to him more than once, that the Muslim, there were Muslim people who were getting dreams that as he approached them, they would tell them about it. And that was in this country. Were, uh, so That's awesome. That was kind of a, that ties right to that. And, and I'll tell you, there are many Muslims that are coming to the Lord today. And that's just awesome. You know, when, when you... When you, if you're, what did Jesus say? If you search for truth, you'll find it. You'll find it. Okay. Yes, Sam. Wasn't there something recently about the, the largest conversion to Christian belief was in Iran? Um. Yeah. I think I heard that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's just the the Muslims are being. Listen, we're living in the last days, folks. Okay. Yes. 80% of the people in Iran are actually Farsi, and they are all Christians. It's just that 20% that's in charge and has the guns is ruining. Yeah, for sure. Let's read Genesis chapter 10. This is the account of Shem, Ham, and Japheth, Noah's sons, who themselves had sons after the flood. So now he's going to give us their lineage, the Japhethites. The sons of Japheth, Gomer, Magog, Madai, Javan, Tubal, Meshech, and Ty Tyrus. Now, if I mis mispronounce these names, it's just that's the way it goes. Okay. <laughs> um, the sons of Gomer is Ashkenaz, Riphab, and Tagarma. Right now, I recognize countries like Gomer. A lot of people think that Germany is 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 uh, part of that that clan, and that um, even even east of Germany in some of the, uh, the the I guess I don't know if you call them the Baltic states, but then you think about Magog. Uh, Magog is is thought to be from the north of Israel. Well, the north of Israel is Turkey and then Russia, so that could be that. Uh, Tubal, Meshech, uh, Togarma, that is uh, people from the, Tur the Tur region around Turkey. The sons of Javan, El Elisha, Tarshish, which is, Tarshish would be this, from Spain, the Kittim and the Rodanim, 
From these, the maritime people spread out into their territories by their clans within their nations, each with its own language. Now we're going to see that in chapter 11, God confounds the language, okay? So when we read each with their own language, then this, this is, if you will, a summary that chapter 11 explains. Does that make sense? Okay. All right. The Hamites. Now this is the clan that was cursed. And we'll, we'll read about that too. Or did we already? No, we already did. Uh, just turn back to Genesis chapter 9 and go to verse 18, okay, 9-18. And we'll read about what happened there. The sons of Noah who came out of the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. It's interesting because we, we have this first genealogy right here that's kind of marked out special for us in Ham and, and Canaan. These were the three sons of Noah, and from them came the people who were scattered over the earth. Noah, a man of the soil. Now this is a this is a failure on the part of Noah. Okay, we'll I'm studying about this, and I'll try to bring you more information on it uh, in weeks to come. Uh, it says Noah, a man of the soil, proceeded to plant a vineyard. When he drank some of its wine, he became drunk and lay uncovered or naked inside his tent. So he got drunk and just was inside his tent and was just naked. It says, Ham, the father of Canaan, saw his father's nakedness. So whether he looked through the door, whether he went to his father's tent, we don't know. And he told his two brothers outside. The thought here is that he was he was being inappropriate. Okay, that's the nicest way I can put it. He was being inappropriate in some way. But Shem and Japheth took a garment and laid it across their shoulders. Then they walked in backwards and covered their father's nakedness. Their faces were turned the other way so that they would not see their father's nakedness. So this is, you know, what happened when, when uh, Adam and Eve realized they were naked? Shame, wasn't it? They, they, were, they were shame. There was shame associated with that nakedness. And so we can see that that still holds true in this case. It says here, their faces were turned the other way so that they would not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from his wine and found out what his youngest son done to him, he said, cursed be Canaan. He curses um, Ham's son. The lowest of slaves will he be to his brothers. So this is really kind of prophetic, isn't it? He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem. May Canaan be the slave of Shem. May God extend the territory of Japheth. May Japheth live in the tents of Shem. And may Canaan be his slave. So Canaan and his descendants are going to be servants or slaves of the other two brothers. Okay? After the flood, Noah lived 350 years. Together, Noah lived 750 years, then he died. Now, when we read, what did I say? Oh, 950. Okay, just ask me. 950 years, then he died. 
and a half. I'm going to have to get the 1.7 fibers now. Okay? These are only 1.50s. Oh, yeah, it's bad. So, now listen. When we read about the descendants of Ham, Canaan is Ham's son, right? So Canaan is cursed. Who comes from Canaan? Almost all the enemies of Israel come from Canaan's line. We're going to see that in just a minute. And when we see that, we see Nimrod, which we're going to study about tonight. He's a very interesting character. He was especially aggravated about serving God and being under the, the servant status that Noah had proclaimed Canaan and his descendants would be. And that's going to follow through throughout history. Let's continue on. Yes? They used to, and I, I don't remember what I read, they used to consider the, uh, the people of Africa descendants of Ham, and so it was okay for them to be slaves, because they were cursed to be servants. Uh, like, yes. That's just very evil. Yeah. yeah, I don't think that's true. No, no. Yeah, I think that. Uh, I think that the, yeah, I think that the people that lived in Africa are, are dark because they've been exposed to the sun centuries after centuries after centuries. You go out in the sun. Well, of course, we're probably too old. I, I'm almost too old to get tan now. Forget I said that. Forget I said that. Okay. So now we're gonna we're gonna see the sons of Ham, okay? And the nations associated with Ham are Ethiopia, Africa, Egypt, Libya, Lebanon, Gaza, Iraq, and Saudi Arabia. It says the sons of Ham, Cush, Mizraim, Put, and Canaan. We see Cush and and Put listed in the nations in Ezekiel chapter thirty-eight as the ones that will side with God. And Magog in the war against Israel. And so there's here's something that you'll recognize there. Seba, the sons of Cush, Seba, Havilah, Sabta, Rama, Sabtika, the sons of Rama, Sheba, and Dedan, which is, is Saudi Arabia. Cush was the father of Nimrod. So Cush, Cush is <coughs> one of the sons of Ham, isn't he? Okay. And Nimrod was the son of Cush. It says, who grew up or who grew to be a mighty warrior on the earth. He was, and look how many times it says mighty. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. And this word before in many translations is translated against. He was a mighty hunter against the Lord. That is why it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. The first centers of his kingdom were Babylon. We know, did you know that Babylon is the second most mentioned city in the Bible after Jerusalem? Yeah. First centers of his kingdom were Babylon. We know what happened in Babylon. Erech, Akkad, Akkad Kalna in Shinar. Shinar was where, of course, the Tower of Babel ended up being 
built or constructed. And we know that in the plain of Shinar, that was where men started idolatrous worship at its, I mean, that's where it really started going. Do you remember our, our study in Daniel of Nebuchadnezzar, King Nebuchadnezzar? It says that he set up an image, a gold image in the plain of Shinar that was 90 feet high and nine, 90 feet wide and commanded all of his subjects to bow down and worship the image. So there's a link there. It says here in verse 11, from that land he went to Assyria. So this guy Nimrod is quite the builder. Okay, quite the builder. From there, he, uh, from that land he went to Assyria. The Assyrians were terrible enemies of Israel. Where he built Nineveh. We know about Nineveh, don't we? What happened to Nineveh? Jonah was, was stationed to go to Nineveh because they were so idolatrous and so evil that he was to go there and preach. He didn't want to go. In fact, he didn't. Turned around one the other way and got Jonah might have been Yes, he did. Now, so he built Nineveh, Rehoboth, Ir, Kalna, and Resen, which is between Nineveh and Kala. That is the great city. Mizraim was the father of the Ludites. Now these are all the Ites, okay? The Ludites, Anamites, Lehabites, Nephtuhites, Patricites, Kasluhites, from which the Philistines came. We know the Philistines were terrible enemies of Israel. And the Kaphirites. Now Canaan. Canaan really does a good job of providing enemies for Israel. Canaan was the father of Sidon, his firstborn, and of the Hittites, Jebusites, Amorites, Girgashites, Hivites, Archites, Sinites, that's not Sinaitis, <laughs> Arbidites, Zemorites, and Hamathites. <laughs> Later, the Canaanite clan scattered and the borders of Canaan reached from Sidon toward Gerar as far as Gaza and then toward where? Sodom, Gomorrah, Admah, and Zeboim as far as Lashah. These are the sons of Ham by their clans and languages in their territories and nations. This, this one little uh, uh, section from verse 6 down to verse um, 20 is very important because men who read about these people all through the Old Testament. The Semites, sons were also born to Shem, whose older brother was Japheth. Shem was the ancestor of all the sons of Eber. The sons of Shem, Elam, Ashur, Arphaxad, Lud, and Aram, the sons of Aram, Uz, just have to name it, just have to be named Uz. <laughs> hey, you're oozing. Uz, Kol, Gether, and Meshech. Arphaxad was the father of Shelah, and Shelah was the father of Ebir. Two sons were born to Ebir, one was named Peleg, 
because in his time the earth was divided, his brother was named Joktan. Uh, Joktan was the father of Almadad, Shelef, Hazar Mapheth, Jera, Hadaram, Uzal, Dekla, Obal, Abimael, Sheba, Ophir, Havilah, and Jobab. All these were the sons of Joktan. The region where they lived stretched from Mesha towards Sephar in the eastern hill country. These are the sons of Shem by their clans and languages and their territories and nations. These are the clans of Noah's sons according to their lines of descent within their nations. From these the nations spread out over the earth after the flood. Now, chapter 11. Now this word battle, okay, during the time that of this his, historical period, meant gate of God. It turned into meaning confusion because of the confusion of the languages. Now the whole world had one language. So now it's, it's going back, it's going back after the flood here and giving us a little more information. And a common speech. As men moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar and settled there. They said to each other, uh, it's interesting because in the King James version, it does have the word us a little bit more. But, so think about the word they and the word us. It says here, they said to each other, come, let's or let us make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They used brick instead of stone for tar and for mortar, and tar for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens. Why? Well, so that we can make a name for ourselves and not be scattered over the face of the whole earth. All right. That's a very short paragraph, but what that speaks volumes. What does it speak to you? They wanted to set up a kingdom. They weren't going to honor God, obviously. Why? Because they're building everything for themselves. Okay. Building everything for themselves. What was God's command to, to Noah? What was God's command to Adam? Go out. Scatter, replenish the earth, and subdue it. In other words, you are the top of the boot. Right? You run things. Well, what they're saying is, hmm, we don't like that. We're going to make ourselves a city. We're going to make a name for ourselves instead of the name of Jehovah, instead of the name of God. And think about this. They were going to make a tower. Now, yes. A tower in the heavens. Okay, so now why would people make or want to make a tower to the heavens? Okay, they would like to reach up to the heavens, maybe be near God. Okay. Displace God. Displace him. Okay. To look down on people. To look down on people. Okay. Yes. 
Yeah, that would, and that's hello. God said, I put this bow in the sky that will not flood the earth again. Now, if you don't believe God's word, you're going to say, you know what? I'm going to build me a tower. And if he decides to flood the earth again, we're going to be saved. Yes. Heck, that noise. Now, if you have studied any of the ziggurats or the towers, uh, especially the Mayans and the Aztecs, etc., almost all of those ziggurats or towers at the very top had a place of sacrifice, okay? And in many of those cases, it was human sacrifice, okay? Now, we know that God does not condone human sacrifice. He, it said here in Genesis chapter uh, 9, verse 6, whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for in the image of God has God made man. So when they built this tower, first of all, their motivations were all anti-God. Everything about it was anti-God. They, they were gonna they were gonna make their name known. They were gonna build a city instead of scattering. They were Nimrod, and it, chapter eleven doesn't say that Nimrod was the head of this project, but you can bet he was. You can just bet he was. Okay. So Let's go, let's finish 11. It says in verse 5, But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower that the men were building. The Lord said, If as one people, speaking the same language, if as one people, speaking the same language, they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Now, think about this for just a minute. The people supposedly in the know, I don't know what you call them, scientists or whatever, say that humans on the average only use 10% of their brain power or less. Okay? Now, in some cases, much less. Okay? Now, we have seen in our time, because of very smart people coming together, doing experiments, whatever, we've seen crazy, crazy technology in every field, in communications, in weapons, in military might. We've seen it in... Uh, uh, we've seen it in the medical field. Good and bad. Cloning. Uh, the thing that you'll... What was that? Space exploration. Space exploration. I mean, we landed a man on the, man on the moon. I mean, that's pretty crazy. Right now... What I am really following is what I would call the chimera approach, okay? Chimera is the mixing of machine and human. Yeah, robotics and humans. Now we've already seen, listen, if you have 
call it a, a, a plastic hip or what do they call it? Replacement hip or huh? Yeah, yeah, you know, prosthesis properly. Okay. Yes. Thank you. Yes. That's your King's Dean version. People are being fitted with all kinds of machinery. Pacemakers. That's a machine. Yeah. Two knees. Two knees. Hips. Yeah. And you know what? We think about that. We don't think anything about that anymore. Oh, you got a new replacement. Yeah, I got one too. But that is just, that is the very tip of the iceberg, my friends. They are studying how to extract DNA out of animals and plant them into humans that humans can have the eyesight of an eagle or the quickness of a leopard or whatever. I mean, to be honest with you, what we're going to see, I really believe, is we're going to see humanity mixed with machinery to the point where what appears to be a human is more machine than human and can that person have a soul? I mean, if you if you've watched anything on television about robotics, it's incredible the stuff that they have. They have drones that are well. They have drones that that actually are microscopic, all the way up to the size of almost a B fifty two bomber, and they're all they're not they're not man driven. They're they're robotics. They're driven by Somebody, they're either, either driven by AI, artificial intelligence, which I don't know if you knew this or not, but there are so many now drones and machines and everything that can act, have actually been programmed to think for themselves. I was watching, um, what is it called? Uh, I don't remember if it was called Future Weapons or something like that on television the other night. And they were talking about these they have all kinds of different machines. They have machines that are underwater, like submarines. They have machines that go off across land, uh, flying machines, etc. And these machines have enough intelligence that. Let me give you an example. The 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 machine that has it has six wheels. Okay, two in the middle, two on each end. So six wheel drive, and it can drive with any two of them. Okay, and it it's programmed to find a way, you give it a, 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 a destination, thank you, you give it a destination and you set up that in the program and it will find its way to that destination. If it comes across an obstacle, it'll back up and go another way, all on its own power, with no manpower behind it at all. Wow, here I am talking about big things. Well, there's still somebody that makes the program, that's very true. 
But I'll tell you something. The more technologically advanced they get, the more we're going to see this autonomous stuff going on. Now, why did I get on all that? Chapter 11, verse 6. Is as, as one people speaking the same language, they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. So if God would have just let them go in their own ungodly way, all with the same language, by now, mankind would be creating life. Mankind would be, would be trying to be a god in his own right. After all, what is the goal of Satan? To be like God, isn't it? To usurp God's place, which he has done in many people's lives. Yes? Well, if you think about it, if, if, let me, how many of you have ever said this? If I knew what I knew now, back then, I'd be in more trouble than you can think of. You know, these people were living five, six, seven, eight, nine hundred years. Now, hopefully, in that span of time, you're going to learn a whole lot more than a person who lives. 50 or 60 or 70 years, right? So even, even just from the time standpoint, uh, they would, we would assume that they would be getting smarter and smarter. Tony? Yeah, this is interesting. I, you know, obviously I've read it before, but I don't know, I just may have forgotten it. But, you know, in uh, Genesis 11, 5, 5, it says, But the Lord came down to see the city. Well, that's not God looking down. That's to me that would be a physical presence of you know, uh, what would be Jesus Christ at, at some point in time. Mm. Yeah. And I don't know why, but it struck me now, whereas before I must have glossed over it or something. Sure, sure. Okay, well let's go on then. So you, you get my idea is is that if God hadn't con confused languages, man in his evil heart. Could, could devise evil things that would blow us away. And it's happening right now. You know, if you think about, let's just think about television for just a minute, okay? Um, you know, television could be used, and in some cases is used, for such good things, for such wholesome, godly things. But look at what television has been turned into. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a means of, of really projecting garbage out to the masses, you know, so, okay, so chapter 11, verse 7, come, let us go down and confuse their language so that they will not understand each other, so the Lord scattered them from there all over the earth, and that, and they stopped building the city, that is why it was called Babel, 
because the Lord confused the language of the whole world. From there, the Lord scattered them over the face of the earth. So what the Lord asked them to do, they didn't. So the Lord did it for This is the account of Shem. Now, the, this we're going to see, too, this is the ancestry of Israel. Two years after the flood, when Shem was 100 years old, he became the father of Arphaxad. And after he became the father of Arphaxad, Shem lived 500 years and had other sons and daughters. So he lived, it looks like, uh, 600 years total. When Arphaxad lived 35 years, he became the father of uh, Shelah. And after he became the father of Shelah, Arphaxad lived 403 years and had other sons and daughters. So, boy, the lifespan really really went down there to 438. Now we've got Shelah, the 30 years, became the father of Eber, and after that he lived 403 years and had other sons and daughters. When Eber lived 34 years, became the father of Peleg, and after he became the father of Peleg, Eber lived 430 years and had other sons and daughters. Now one thing that I read, and we will I'm just going to tell you, is there is, have you ever heard of the, I don't know whether I'm saying that the continental shift, continent shift. If you look at a world map and you took away the oceans and just put the land masses, they almost kind of fit together in many cases. What's that? Uh, what is it called, Bill? Drift, yeah. Continental drift, etc. So they say that during this time of Peleg is when many of the continents, God caused the continents to shift to ensure that the peoples were divided. Okay. Now whether that's true or not, I don't know, but it it it, it is interesting to to study that continental drift because it looks like I mean if, if you think about the way the earth Moves okay the way the 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 shelves and stuff moves so it moves like this and then one shelf will go under okay so what's happening is the earth is moving things are moving in the earth okay and uh, I, you know I would assume that would take many 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 years but with God who knows he could he could do something in a short period of time verse. Yeah, exactly. So that may have been Yeah. No. Yeah. Bill? No, it's been a while, but I remember a biblical teacher and how relevant this is. I don't know, but I believe this is also the line of Abraham that Hebrew was where we get Hebrew was from. It's implied by that, that so it's Hebrew or Hebrew. Okay. You know, it, it, there's many things we just simply don't know. It, they give us this outline, but there's a whole lot of history that goes into this outline. Now, verse 20, it says, When Ru had lived 32 years, became the father of Sarug, and after that he lived 207 years, had other sons and daughters. Then we go down to Sarug, or whatever his name is, lived 30 years, he became the Father Nahor, and then 
Nahor, Sirut lived 200 years and had other sons and daughters. So we're down to 230 years now. He started out Shem at 600. And they started, it seems like they started having kids younger too. Maybe that's what caused them to die early. I think we're on to something. It's the kid's fault. Okay. Now, uh, verse 26, when, when, verse 24. When Nehor had lived 29 years, he became father of Terah. Now we're getting close to Abraham here. And after he became the father of Terah, Nehor lived 119 years, had other sons and daughters. After Terah lived 70 years, he became the father of Abraham. Nehor and Terah. This is the account of Terah. Terah became the father of Abraham, Nehor and Terah. And Haran became the father of Lot. So Lot was Abraham's nephew. Right? While his father Terah was still alive, Haran died in Ur of the Chaldeans, in the land of his birth. We know that that's where Abram came from. Abram and Nahor both married. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai. Uh, Abram the word Abram means father of high and windy places. Sarai means complainer. Okay, I'm to be nice here. All right. Um, and the name of Nahor's wife was Milcah. She was the daughter of Haran, the father of both Milcah and Ish Iscah. Now Sarai was barren, she had no children. Terah took his son Abram, his grandson Lot, son of Haran, and his daughter-in-law Sarai, the wife of son Abram, and together they set out from Ur of the Chaldeans to go to Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. Terah lived 205 years and died in Haran. Now, so the chapter 12, we're going to start getting into Abram here, which is really going to be interesting. Let's go to our handout. This is just, I, I think this is just very interesting and I want you to know, okay? So let's just read it, to, I'll read it through with you. You're welcome to, uh, if you look at the, the kind of the darker verse, the darker sentences here, those are ones that I outlined with yellow marker. And then the ones that were underlined is the ones that I underlined because I thought that they were uh, important, okay? In Genesis 10 and 11, we have historical links which connect us, uh, connect for us the time of Noah with the days of Abraham. So we saw Noah, the flood in chapter 6, and then in chapter 7 uh, of Genesis, we saw, um, we saw, actually we saw, in, seven, we, in 6 we saw the wickedness of man, in 7 we saw Noah going into the ark. In eight, we saw the earth flooded and and the waters receding. In verse nine, we see God's covenant with Noah. In verse ten, we see the table of nations. And in verse eleven, the Tower of Babel. Okay, uninteresting as they may appear to the casual reader, they furnish most valuable information to the prayerful student. 
without these two chapters, that's 10 and 11, the genealogies which they contain, we should be quite unable to trace the fulfillment of Noah's wonderful prophecy. We should be without any satisfactory solution to the ethnological problem presented by the variety and number of different nations and tongues, and we should be left in ignorance concerning the cause from the human side, which led up to God abandoning his dealings with the nations and singling out Abram to be the father of his chosen people, Israel. Genesis 10 and 11 give us the history of the post-Diluvian, that would be the after-the-flood world. They show us the ways of men in this new world in revolt against God and seeking to glorify and deify themselves. And they set before us the principles and judgments upon which the world is founded. For the understanding of the chapters, it is necessary to pay careful attention to their structure and chronology. Chapter 11 historically antedates much of chapter 10. In other words, it came before chapter 10. Furnishing us with a commentary on it. Verses 8 to 12 of chapter 10. So look at chapter 10 real quick. Verses 8 to 12 is Cush was the father of Nimrod. And it goes down and tells us what Cush did and what, uh, what Nimrod did and what Nimrod built. Okay? It says verses 8 to 12 of chapter 10 and verses 1 to 9 of chapter 11 should be read as two parentheses. Reading them thus, we find that outside of these parentheses, these chapters furnish us with the genealogical descent of Abraham from, or Abram from Noah. Upon these genealogies and origins of the various nations, we shall not now comment, preferring to dwell at some length on the parenthetical portions. So, like everything else in Genesis, the historical events recorded in these brief parentheses are remarkable in their typical significance. What that means is they are a type of something that's going to happen later on, okay? And reach. In the clearer and fuller light of the New Testament, we cannot fail to see that Nimrod foreshadowed the last great world ruler before our Lord descends to earth and ushers in his millennial reign. It is deeply significant that the person and history of Nimrod are here introduced at the point immediately preceding God calling Abram from among the Gentiles and bringing him into the promised land. So will be again in the near future. Just before God gathers Abraham's descendants, that be the Jews, from out of the lands of the Gentiles, many, perhaps the majority of whom, will be found dwelling at that very time in Assyria. See Isaiah chapter 11, you can look at that on your own. There will arise one who will fill out the picture here, typically outlined by Nimrod. We refer, of course, to the Antichrist. As the Antichrist is a subject of such interest and importance, his manifestation being now so near at hand, we digress for a moment to say one or two things about him. So this uh, article is going to teach us just a little bit about the Antichrist, okay, which we studied in Revelations, we studied it in 2 Thessalonians, etc., 
to begin at the beginning. We need not remind our readers that Satan is the avowed and age-long enemy of God, and that all through the course of human history, he has been opposing his maker and seeking to secure the scepter of earth's sovereignty. He wants to be the king. Further, we do not need, we need not dwell upon the fact so plainly revealed in scripture that Satan is an imitator, parodying and counterfeiting the ways and things of the Lord. We know that from, uh, I can't remember, well, it's in the book of Corinthians. The climax of Satan's, of all Satan's schemes has not yet become history. Though the inspired word shows us clearly what form this climax will soon. God's purposes for this earth are to be realized and consummated in a man, the man Christ Jesus, who will yet reign over it as King of kings and Lord of lords. Satan's designs will also head up in a man, the man of sin, who will for a short season reign over the earth as its acknowledged king. This man will be preeminently energized by Satan himself, 2 Thessalonians 2.9, he will assume the right to enforce his autocratic dictates on all alike, quote, and he causes all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and bond, to receive a mark in their right hand or in their foreheads that no man might buy or sell, save he who had the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name, Revelation 13. He it was who was before the psalmist when he said, quote, he, Christ, shall wound the head over many countries. Psalm 110.6 He was the only one pictured by the prophet when he wrote, Yea, also, because he transgresses, transgresses, transgresseth by lying, he is a proud man, speaking of the Antichrist here, neither keeper at home who enlarges his desire as hell, and is as death, and cannot be satisfied, but gathereth him unto him all nations, and heaped unto him all people. Habakkuk chapter 2. This man of sin will be the superman of whom the world is now, is even now talking about, and for whom it is so rapidly being prepared. He will be the Lord of light, the great Mahatma, for whom theosophists and Baha'ists are looking. The Antichrist is not only the subject of Old Testament prophecy, but he's also subject of Old Testament typology. Most of the characters brought before us in Old Testament history are types of one of two men, Christ or the Antichrist. Much attention has been paid to the study of and much has been written about those personages which foreshadowed our blessed Lord. You think about the people that, that were types of Christ, okay? But much less thought has been devoted to the consideration of those who prefigured the man of sin. A wide field here lies open for investigation, and we doubt not that as his appearing draws nigh, the Holy Spirit will furnish additional light on this little studied subject. 
One of those who foreshadowed the Antichrist was Nimrod. In at least seven particulars can the analogy be clearly traced. First, his very name, that would be Nimrod, describes that which will be most prominent, will be the most prominent characteristic of all in the one he typifies, that would be the Antichrist. Nimrod means the rebel, reminding us of one of the titles of the Antichrist found in 2 Thessalonians, the lawless one. Secondly, the form which Nimrod's rebellion assumed was a, to head a great confederacy in open revolt against God. This confederacy is described in Genesis 11, and that it was an organized revolt against Jehovah is clear from the language of 10.9. Nimrod, the mighty hunter before the Lord, which, as we shall see, means that he pushed his own designs in brazen defiance of his maker. Thus it will be with the Antichrist of him and his written, and the king, this is speaking of the Antichrist, shall do according to his will, and he shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every god or ruler, and shall speak marvelous things against the god of gods, and shall prosper till the indignation be accomplished. For that which is determined shall be done. Neither shall he regard the God of his fathers, nor the desire of women, nor regard any God, for he shall magnify himself above all. That's in Daniel 11. We studied that. Third, four times over the word mighty, four times over, the word mighty is used to describe Nimrod. Here again, we are reminded of the lawless one, the Antichrist, of whom it is said, even him whose coming was after the working of Satan with all power and signs and lying wonders. Fourth, Nimrod was a hunter, probably a hunter of men. This is precisely what the lawless one or the Antichrist will be. In Psalm 5, 6, he is denominated the bloody and deceitful man. Fifth, Nimrod was a king. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel. And as we have seen in Daniel 11.36, the Antichrist is also termed king. Six, Nimrod's headquarters were in Babylon. So connected with mystery Babylon in Revelation 17. Seventh, Nimrod's supreme ambition and desire was to make himself a name. He had an inordinate desire for fame. Here to the antitype, agrees with the type. Pride is spoken of as the condemnation of the devil. It was an impious ambition which brought about his downfall. The man of sin will be fully possessed by Satan, hence an insatiable pride will possess him. It is this satanic egotism which will cause him to oppose and exalt above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he, as God, sitteth in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Now, if you've ever studied Hitler, if you've ever studied Saddam Hussein, uh, in particular, any of the dictatorships like Mussolini or Stalin or Lenin, etc., these people 
were egotists to the max. And they are responsible for killing more people than probably all the diseases of the world. It was just, just amazing. So what he what they're saying in this article here is, is very true if you if you compare them to our modern day antichrists. Because Hitler was a modern day antichrist. Okay? Yes. Correct. Revelation does refer to the Antichrist as uh, one of the kings, right? Hmm? Oh, Nimrod? No, um, no. I don't think. I don't think so. No, I think you're talking about the Antichrist. All right, let's go down. We're we're now in this little section here. We have now prepared the way for a more detailed yet brief exposition of the two parenthetical portions of Genesis 10 and 11. Now he quotes Genesis 10, and Cush begat Nimrod, he began to be a mighty one in the earth. The first thing we note here is that Nimrod was a descendant of Ham through Cush. In other words, he sprang from that branch of Noah's family on which rested the curse. Next, we observe that it is said he began to be mighty, which seems to suggest the idea that he struggled for the preeminence and by mere force of will obtained it. Finally, we observe that he began to be mighty in the earth. The intimation appears to be that of conquest or subjugation, as though he became a leader and ruler over men, as indeed he did. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord, whereof it is said, even as Nimrod, the mighty hunter before the Lord. So in so brief a description, the repetition of these words, mighty hunter, before the Lord are significant. Three times in Genesis 10, and again in 1 Chronicles 1.10, the word mighty is applied to Nimrod. The Hebrew word is gabor, and is translated in the Old Testament chief and chieftain. The verse in Chronicles is in perfect agreement with these in Genesis. And Cush began Nimrod, he began to be mighty upon the earth. The Chaldee paraphrase of this verse says, Cush begat Nimrod, who began to prevail in wickedness, for he slew innocent blood and rebelled against Jehovah. Observe, a mighty hunter before the Lord. If we compare this expression with a similar one in Genesis 6.11, the earth also in the days of Noah was corrupt before the Lord. The impression conveyed is that this rebel pursued his own impious and ambitious designs in raising an open defiance of the Almighty. As we shall see, the contents of Genesis 11 confirm this interpretation. And the beginning of his kingdom was Babel. Here is the key to the first nine verses of the 11th chapter. Here we have the first mention of Babel. And like the first mention of anything in Scripture, this one demands careful consideration. In the language of that time, Babel meant the gate of God. But afterwards, because of the judgments which God inflicted there, it came to mean confusion. And from here onwards, this is the force or meaning. By coupling together the various hints, 
which the Holy Spirit has here given us, we learn that Nimrod organized not only an imperial government over which he presided as king, but that he instituted a new and idolatrous worship. If the type is perfect, and we believe it is, then the lawless one, that would be the Antichrist, will yet do. Nimrod demanded and received divine honors, and in all probability it's just here that we have the introduction of idolatry. Here again we learn how wonderfully the first mention of anything in Scripture defines its future scope. There is a, um, there is a, a law of interpretation, okay? Whenever you want to interpret something, you go back to the first time it's mentioned in Scripture. And you look at that. And then you compare the other times. Now, it says in Scripture, let me see, where are we at here? Okay. Uh, here again, we learn how wonderfully the first mention of anything in Scripture defines its future scope. From this point, Babylon in Scripture stands for that which is in opposition to God and his people. It was a Babylonian garment in Joshua 7.21 which led to the first sin in the promised land. While from Revelation 17 we learned that Romanism, which will gather itself, which will gather into itself the whole apostate Christendom, is termed Mystery Babylon. Babylon. What they're saying here is that the Romanism religion, which we know as Catholicism, okay, is going to eventually gather into itself under that heading, if you will, all of the religions of the world, which will at that time become the one world religion. I don't know if you knew this or not, but, and this is very sad to me, but in the Catholic Catechism, it states that Muslims worship the same God that the Catholics do. And, uh, yeah, yeah. And so they're, they're, they're saying Allah, which Allah was, was and is a name of God. I mean, it, it has been from historical uh, times, but the Muslims definitely don't worship the same God we worship. Okay? They worship a different God. Now, let's go on. It says here, out of that land, you see where we are? Out of that land, he went forth, this is uh, Nim, uh, Nimrod, into Assyria and built Nineveh and the city of Rehoboth and Calah and Resin between Nineveh and Calah. The same is the real city. We just read that. From these statements, we gather the impression that Nimrod's ambition was to establish a world empire. But we must now turn to the next chapter, asking our readers to study carefully the first nine verses in the light of what we've said above. And the whole earth was of one language and one speech, and it came to pass, as they journeyed from the east, that they found a plain in the land of Shinar and dwelt there. These geographical and topographical references have a moral force, just as we read, just as we read of going down to Egypt, but up to Jerusalem. Here we are told that men journeyed from the east, i.e., 
turn their backs upon the sunrise. Look further, a plain, not a mountain, in the land of Shinar. Nimrod is not mentioned at all in Genesis 11, but from the statements made in the previous chapter, we learned that he was the chief and king which organized and headed the movement and rebellion here described. And we read this verse, and they said, go to, let us build us a city and a tower whose top may reach into heaven and let us make us a name lest we be scattered apart abroad upon the face of the whole earth. Here we discover You okay, honey?